I think other than Easter, Christmas is, as a Christian, uh, really the most wonderful time of the year. And it is for reasons that are oftentimes uh, lost on, I think, on the culture. And they don't understand why we feel the way we do and why it, is, why it means so much to us. Uh, although there are a lot of things that we enjoy that everybody else enjoys, like we enjoy being with family and friends. And so as you make your travels or people are coming to see you, whatever it is, I hope you have a great time with your family, friends, loved ones. Uh, Jennifer and I were heading to uh, my family, then her family, and we're navigating the marital... Somebody before the service, they called it... Uh, what did they call it? I forget it now. It was uh, shuttle diplomacy, I think is what they called it. And so we're doing that, uh, and it should be great. So I hope your time is blessed. Everybody kind of does that, though. Uh, gift giving. Everybody does gift giving. Everybody likes receiving gifts. All said? Amen. So we're all about that. I have said before, it's true, I have the gift of receiving. Some people have the gift of giving. I, it takes givers and receivers, and I'm happy to be on the receiving of that, so that's good. Lots of gift giving going on. People that don't you know, believe it was the Son of God in the manger, they give gifts and they can enjoy that and be blessed by it. But truly, as Christians, there is uh, and there must be something to our celebration of Christmas that goes beyond the sentimental, that goes beyond uh, the silver bells and the sleigh rides and, uh, you know, the spirit of Christmas and all the things that in the mall and in the press and everywhere else people talk about and all of that. There's got to be something more to it. In fact, it is that thing that is more to it that is what allows us to get to the point that we need to be to which honestly I find sometimes harder to do. Can I be honest with that? Sometimes there have been some years where uh, all of the other things are, are distracting me and I, I basically come to Christmas exhausted. And I go to the reservoir to be, okay, now I'm going to worship or now I'm going to kind of get to where I need to be as a Christian for Christmas and there's like nothing there. I'm like flat. And maybe that's you this, this year, I don't know. But I would say this, that we do not want to do Christmas like the agnostic and like the secularist and certainly not like the atheist or any other faith. We want to be Christians at Christmas, amen? And that means there is something to it. We, we believe there is more to it than just a story or a myth. It, it is grounded in a historical event that really did happen. And we believe that it really did happen. There really was, uh, there really was a Mary and there really was a Joseph and there really were angels and shepherds and all the rest. We believe that as the Bible described it, that's what actually happened. And we are not rooting our faith and all of this in a fantasy or in some desire to have warm feelings at a certain time of year. And we are certainly not wanting to miss the, the, the truth behind what it means that he is Emmanuel, that God has come. And so to that end and to that goal, I, uh, I want to speak a message that I hope if you are, if you are not there by faith, if you are not there believing in this child as the son of God, 
might encourage you to get there and to believe personally. And if you are a Christian and you are exhausted, you're, you know, you're just not there, that this would be something that would put the wind in your sails and uh, that we might celebrate Christmas as Christians. So I'm going to do it from Luke's account of the Christmas narrative. We have two Gospels that really give us uh, detail about the birth of Jesus. Matthew, who does it from the perspective of Joseph, and Luke, who largely does it from the perspective of Mary. And Luke, by the way, uh, does it much different than, than Matthew. Luke, you might, re- you might know, was a doctor. And so he was a doctor, a scientist. These kinds of people, they're more given to detail. And they look into the, into the, the deeper things of the matter. And we see that with Luke's account. I mean, Luke is the one who uh, gives the historical context of the census that Caesar had. Matthew doesn't mention that. And, uh, you know, Luke talks about what happened, the surrounding details, and the whole shepherd and the angels and all that. Matthew doesn't talk about that. Uh, Luke gets down to the detail of saying, you know, not only was he wrapped in fabric, but he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's a level of detail, isn't it? And so Luke is the guy, he gives us Christmas, Christmas in HD, like detail, closer up, so we see what happened in, uh, in, in, in more minutia. Now, Luke does that much more like a historian, but Luke also, he doesn't want us just to know what happened, he wants us to know the meaning of what happened. It's one thing to know the story, it's another thing to know what the story means. And the way that Luke does this uh, may surprise you. Uh, he does it with a song. Now, more on that in, in a second. I feel like the church ought to regularly tell the story of Christmas. And so I'd like to begin by giving you the Christmas story in fast forward. Okay? The Christmas story in fast forward. Luke uh, one doesn't begin in Nazareth or with at Bethlehem or even with Mary and Joseph. Luke one begins with Mary's cousin Elizabeth, whose husband was a priest, and he is one day serving in the temple. And there he is doing his normal thing, and all of a sudden an angel appears to him and says, "You and your wife are going to have a child." And Zechariah is like, "How can this be? It's, we're older in life. I can't believe this would ever happen." And the angel says, "To show you it's going to happen, I'm giving you a sign, and you're not going to be able to talk until the kid's born." And so, Luke one, most of Luke one, is the story of how Zechariah and Elizabeth, later in life, have a child. And indeed, Zechariah goes home. Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and as a side note, I want to say any similarities uh, in that narrative to uh, an announcement made earlier in the service of an older man uh, impregnating his wife is purely coincidental. (laughs) Now Luke 1 picks up the story then with an angel and a, a young girl. We're introduced to a young girl named Mary. Now just so you know how young she is, she is probably somewhere around the age of 14, okay? 14. How old are you right here? You're 14. It's perfect. Why don't you stand up just a moment, would you? (laughs) Turn around, wave to everyone. This is is what we're talking about. Thank you. You may be seated. And there's a free coffee for you in the bookstore afterwards for doing that. Uh, Young. Young. 
14. Mary, all of a sudden, an angel appears to her. Oh, by the way, she lives in Nazareth, which Nazareth is like uh, no one's ever heard of Nazareth. I've compared Nazareth in the past to Leroy. If you're familiar with Leroy going down 231, it's like all of a sudden you're passing. You're like, was that, what was that? A t- I don't know what that was. That, when people went by Nazareth, they were, was that a town? Well, I don't know what that was. It was a wide spot in the road. Its only reputation was that it had no reputation. And so you have a young girl in a, in a no reputation town just doing whatever the 14 year old girl does when all of a sudden Gabriel, the angel, appears to her and says, you are highly favored and you will, you will give birth to a, a son and he will be the son of the most high God. And Mary, as a 14 year old girl, says, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, Zechariah, questioned uh, and doubted whether or not God could do what he was going to do, and so he couldn't talk for nine months. Mary simply seeks clarification. How can this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel says to her, this is something that God is going to do. He is going to create this life within you. Now, we know more in the story, of course, that Mary was betrothed to a guy by the name of Joseph. And uh, betrothal in that time was a little bit different than our engagement, stronger, like engagement on steroids. It basically was a kind of commitment and covenant that to get out of it required actually a divorce. They were kind of considered husband and wife, but not yet. They were almost married. It was basically marriage minus the cohabitation and the consummation. So very strong. She's betrothed to, to Joseph. Now, this is an interesting moment, isn't it? When Mary has to go to Joseph and say, I'm pregnant. And Joseph says, of course, what any man would think, how could you do this to me? And Mary says, God did it. And uh, I'm not sure how well that would go over. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I've heard that one a thousand times, right? But anyway, this is what happens. And so let's fast forward now in the story and let's get to the beginning of chapter 2. At the beginning of chapter 2, we come to find out that the Caesar of all of the world, of Rome, the known world at the time, uh, says, I want a census. I want to know how many people are in my kingdom. Everybody go to the town of your heritage. And, by the way, as a side note, uh, well, I'll get to that in a second. We come to find out that Mary and Joseph... Both, for sure Joseph, likely Mary, are descendants of King David. In fact, in Matthew's account, the angel that appears to to Joseph says, Hey Joseph, son of David. And that now gets the messianic juices flowing. If you didn't know anything else, and all of a sudden you get to chapter 2 and it says, They're making their way to Bethlehem because... They are of the lineage of David. All of a sudden, all of these prophecies and promises and all the things that had been said all through the Old Testament now begin to well in your heart. And you're like, aha, wait a second. This might be something very, very exciting. Indeed, it is. And so Joseph and Mary make their way to the heritage of of Joseph's family to to Bethlehem, where David was from, about a 40-mile uh, journey, by the way, in a day when they didn't have cars or trains or planes or anything else, they had to walk. And so imagine now, we know that Mary is uh, nine months pregnant, and they're making their way all, to, all the way to Bethlehem. Legend says she was on a donkey. We don't know if she was on a donkey, but tender, loving husbands of pregnant women treat their wives magnificently. So I would have to think that 
it was a donkey probably of some, of some kind, or perhaps the husband was the donkey in that moment. So they get to Bethlehem. Now, this is not going to be a problem in their mind because they're thinking to themselves, we'll just stay with a family or a relative, because in that culture, it was not uncommon at all to arrive somewhere and to simply stay with a fellow Jew. Very hospitable. You just show up at the place and say, hey, can we stay? Come on in. You're welcome to stay with us. So they arrive to Bethlehem and they're thinking, we'll just stay with somebody. And after all, she's very much pregnant, so we need to find something quick. They come into Bethlehem and everybody else has been coming from all over the world. All of David's descendants, all of the, the grand, great, 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 great grandkids of Jesse and all the rest. They're all there. They've already awa- arrived. Pregnant women travel slowly. So there's no, there's no place for them. They go door to door. Can we stay with you? And the, the owners of the house said, I would love to take you in, but we've got them hanging from the rafters already. There's no room. Go to the next house. Next house, there's no room. Finally, they go to the inn where they hope maybe they might have some extra rooms. And the innkeeper says, listen, this place has been packed. It's been booked up for months. Everyone's here for the census. I can't, I can't displace these people. The only thing I got is I've got a little shelter out here. It's a cave. And you're welcome to that if you'd like. No charge. And Joseph's like, well, what can I do? I've got to have some place. And so they go to the cave. They go to the place where the animals are, are kept. And that very night, the Bible says that Mary went into labor and gave birth to this son. And they named him Jesus. Now, all of heaven is so excited about this on earth. Hardly anybody knows what's going on. Mary, Joseph, pretty much that's it. But in heaven, everybody is rejoicing. The angels are rejoicing. They want to tell somebody. And so they pick the most unlikely people to go and to deliver the news to. And you know who it was? That's right, hobbits. It was hobbits that they told. (laughs) Actually, the shepherds are very similar to the hobbits. And the whole story of the hobbit and the Lord of the Rings is how the most unlikely people rise to have a prominent role in the story. And the shepherds are the most unlikely people that you would think would get an announcement like this. They were the bottom of the social ladder. Nobody, you know, they were, they were like, they were the, 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 whatever. You know what I'm saying? So you don't expect the shepherds to get the news, but the angel appears to them, might have been Gabriel, might have been Michael, we don't know, and says, there has been a baby born in Bethlehem. He is Christ the Lord and the glory of the angel. And then tens of thousands of angels fill the sky and all of them begin to sing and to be glad. Uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth uh, peace, goodwill towards men. So these shepherds who now are, are, can't believe what has just happened and what they have been told. They don't have PhDs. They don't have master's degrees. They probably never went to school in the first place, but you don't have to be very smart. To know that if angels show up and tell you that something really big happened in the town right over there, that you probably ought to go and check it out. And so the shepherds, they go into Bethlehem and they want to find this baby. And you know how they found the baby? How many say a star? Nobody wants to say anything. (laughs) It wasn't a star. That's the magi. They come later. It was this. Basically, they went into town. Remember, it's packed with people. They don't know where this baby is. They go door to door. Has anybody seen a baby in a feeding trough? 
And the door keeps getting slammed in their face because the women are saying, what kind of person would put a baby in a feeding trough? Get out of here, you shepherds. Door to door to door. Finally, somebody says, we saw a pregnant woman coming into town not so long ago. She went to the inn, but I know it's packed. Go find out where they sent her. So they go to the inn. The innkeeper says, well, I put them in the cave over there. The shepherds make their way to the cave and they get in there. And there, sure enough, there is Joseph and there's Mary. And they're wrapped in swaddling clothes is this child laying in the most humble spot in all the land, in the place where the donkeys and the sheep and the other animals stuck their mouths in a most sort of disgusting way and ate out of that trough. This now is the place where the glorious Son of God lays. And they tell to Mary and Joseph, you're not going to believe what we just saw out here. We came here because the angels told us about this. And there were tens of thousands of brilliant lights saying incredible things about this child. And they left there celebrating and praising God that they could be a part of the story. And the the text ends with Mary treasuring up these things in her heart, pondering what they mean. What is this child going to be? And that's the Christmas story in Fast Forward. The church needs to tell that story so we all know what it is, okay? So, all right. Now, with that said, I told you at the beginning what I want to do is I would like to make sure that we all know the difference between knowing what happened and knowing the meaning of what happened. And Luke, the historian, does not turn to facts and uh, figures to explain this. He turns to poetry and to song, much like every culture in the history of the world does. The historians write the story, but it is the poets and the songwriters and the artisans who tell us what this means. Now, guess who is the artist explaining what this means? In fact, the very first Christmas song ever written by Mary, the mother of the child, writes the first song, a lyric, a poem. It sounds like a psalm, I think, for reasons I'll get into. We don't have the melody, but we do have the lyrics. And so let me read now the song that Mary composes in response to Her cousin Elizabeth uh, rejoicing in her child. And Mary said, this is Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring 
forever. Now, what we see obviously here is that this Mary, this young girl, was a tremendous woman of the word. The words that she shares here, many of them flowing right out of the Psalter, right out of the Psalms, right out of her heart, and in a, in a most doctrinally rich and profound way. How many 14-year-old girls do you know that could write something like this? And we see that God kind of knew what he was doing when he said, you know what, Mary's going to be the, the mother of my son. She was a woman of the word. Would that all our women would be women of the word. And to have God's word in their heart so richly that this kind of reflection could flow out of our hearts. Now, I'll bet in your Bible, mine, mine does, if you look at uh, this, this song, there is a heading in my Bible. It says, the Magnificat. You say that, possibly? The Magnificat. This is, it's, it's, the, it's the title we give to this song, Mary's Magnificat. And I have all the, I've read this many times and I've always sort of thought it was a title that somebody gave Mary's magnificence, you know, like Mr. Holland's opus. This is his, his supreme kind of song and his supreme example of his, his, uh, ability that somehow this was about Mary's magnificence, something like that. And I've come to find out this week that it is actually the opposite of that. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to tackle this, not by reading the whole or studying the whole thing, but simply focusing on verses 46 through 48 and four words that explain what Christmas is all about and four words that if properly understood and in context will not only bring the Christian to a point of worship, but will also bring the sinner to a point of salvation. And I'd love it if both of those things happened today. Four words. The first word we see in the first phrase, my soul magnifies the Lord. Magnifies is our first word. Mary says, this is my spirit. This is my soul. In other words, inside of who I am, not simply my words, but down deep inside, there is a magnification that is going on here. It flows from her heart. So what does it mean to magnify the Lord? Well, to magnify sounds like I make him bigger, right? I make him, I make him bigger. But can we make God bigger than he is? No. So we're not talking about somehow making God bigger. Well, what are we talking about then? And I think a helpful illustration is a well-known illustration of the difference between a microscope and a telescope. Okay, a microscope and a telescope. We all probably know basically in terms of form and function the difference. A microscope is something that uh, helps make little things bigger, right? So if you're in ninth grade biology class and you get your very first microscope and you get some little slide that you put the little drop of whatever it is, I can't remember that it's called, some kind of fluid of some kind. Help me in the second row here, 14-year-old. You're probably in that class, aren't you? We'll call it liquid. And (laughs) you place the slide over it. You place it under the microscope. And now whatever you, whatever is there under the microscope, while it's small, you look at it, it looks big, right? So you can now see the, the fabric in the paper, the little fibers, and you can see the 
cell uh, there under the microscope, and it looks much bigger than, than, than it is. Telescope does the opposite. Now, they're, they're, all, they're very similar. They're both tubes. They both have glass in them. They're both magnifying. But a telescope does something much different. A telescope is not helping us make something little appear bigger. It is about making something that is massive, observable, and understandable. I look, I look through a telescope at the stars or the galaxies, and I realize this place is huge. Telescopes are about wow and majesty and size and enormity. And the telescope helps me to understand that. And when it comes to the incarnation and what Mary is getting at here is she's not saying, you know what, I magnify like a microscope. I'm not saying this is a little thing. It's a little thing that I want to make a big deal about. This is a massive thing that... I come in, I bring into my understanding and I realize what majesty and glory and, and, uh, and, and, uh, beauty truly there is in what God has done. Microscope, telescope. The very first Christmas song is nothing about microscoping, but about the enormity that the Son of God who dwelled in eternity past in all the glory and majesty that was his, infinite glory and majesty, that this second person of the Trinity has left that place of exaltation and has come into this world, and Mary, now realizing, has come in the smallest, most profound way. A cell, a single cell inside her womb, that divided and divided and divided. Mary realizes this is not a little thing. This is a massive thing. What do you got today in your, in your hand? You got a microscope or you got a telescope? I'll tell you, our culture is all about microscoping Christmas. You listen to the news, you read the whatever... What you find, what we find is, is that in the culture, in the unbelieving culture, they want to say, you Christians, you're making a big deal out of something that's not so big. You're microscoping this thing. It's little, it's small. And they do that in so many ways. Let's change the language, right? It's, that, it's a holiday. It's the spirit of Christmas. It's about family. It's about giving. It's about this, that, and the other. I'm here to tell you that has nothing to do with what the meaning of Christmas is all about. It is about the Son of God, Jesus, who came into this world to save sinners. That is what Christmas is about. And everything else is fluff around it. And the church has got to get that. And we as Christians have got to get that because when I don't get that, Now my heart is flat, and I certainly don't get to a place of worship, which is, if you want to pick a word for what Mary's doing here, she is worshiping God. My soul magnifies the Lord within me. I think what happened was, Mary, the angel appears to Mary, tells her this news. She's shocked by the news like anybody would be, and she has time now as she travels to Elizabeth to go see Elizabeth on the road and over the night and however long that took for her to get there, and she 
thought about it, and she pondered the Old Testament scriptures, which she clearly knew very well, and her soul, her heart welled up with joy and gladness and at least a basic understanding of what God was doing. And it overflowed in the song that we have before us, magnifying the massiveness of what God was doing. Microscope or telescope, why don't you just do a little self-analysis. What have I got today? What have I got in my heart? Second word we find is rejoice. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I think if there is any, if you want to talk about emotion, if there's any emotion that jumps out of the Christmas narrative, it is joy. I mean, you, you read through the story and you have all of these remarkable things, right? Elizabeth and Zechariah having a child later in life. Joy at that. You've got Gabriel coming to Mary and telling her the most trembling kind of wonderful news the world has ever heard. What comes out of that? Joy and gladness. You've got her song here. The angels celebrating, filling heaven with their song. The shepherds hearing the news, running to see the baby, rejoicing in what... They, what they have heard and seen. Later, the wise men, two years later approximately, coming down, joy and gladness. The whole thing, it is, if there's an emotion about it, it is joy and gladness. But it is not manufactured. And that's the thing that also in, 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 in our culture that we live in, we try to manufacture it with the song and with the uh, decorating, all these kind of things. And it will feel superficial if we do not understand that the joy flows from the meaning and the meaning is that is emmanuel god with us when i get that the natural response is gladness like mary my soul rejoices in god my savior joy to the world the lord has come let heaven and earth sing third word humble my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant we see here again the kind of character that god chose in the woman who would bear his own son she realized who she really was she did not have an inflated sense of self In fact, to ask this question, what woman in all of human history has ever received a greater honor than Mary to bear Jesus? I mean, think of all the Oscars and all of the queens and all of the crowns and all of the things that people applaud for what woman is more honored than Mary? None. She is number one. I mean, when you're at the party and, and, and the woman's going, well, did you know that my child was a 4.0 this, this year? And another, well, did you know that I, uh, you know, ran the Chicago Marathon? And uh, did you know that I had three appearances on Oprah? You know, and they're going around the room trying to one-up each other. And then Mary says, I bore the Son of God. <laughs> I mean, that pretty much trumps everything, doesn't it? In fact, the people that are doing these other things, think about if, if, if your average... If your average woman, girl was to get an honor, not even close to this, what they would do with it, right? It'd be on Facebook right away. She'd be, you know, 
on the billboard. She'd be her, she'd get an agent. She'd be trying to, you know, leverage that and make the most of it. In other words, the inflation of self, the magnification of self. And Mary is the exact opposite of that. She doesn't magnify self. She magnifies the Lord. And she certainly doesn't think to herself, well, God got this one right. Because after all, look at the kind of wonderful person that I am. She says the opposite of that. The Lord has seen me in my humble estate. She recognizes that only God would do it this way. I mean, if she had time to think about it and to talk to the angel, she might have said, you know, I think you may have the wrong girl. Why not a rich man's daughter? Why not, why not a king's daughter to bear the king of kings and lord of lords? I think you might have the wrong girl. And I think in Joseph, you might have the wrong guy. I mean, he's, nobody's ever heard of Joseph. He's a carpenter. He's not, he's not a professor. He's not a, he's not a, a political ruler. Are you sure you want Joseph to be the, the guy that's raising this child? I think you might have the wrong circumstance. I mean, somehow I think I've got to get down to Bethlehem because I know my Bible and Micah says that, uh, you know, the child's to be born in, in Bethlehem. We're up here in Nazareth. That's a long walk. And if I'm pregnant, that doesn't sound very fun. I think maybe this isn't exa- I don't see how the circumstances are exactly working for this to play out. You might, you might have the wrong circumstance. I think you might have the wrong setting. The wrong setting, a cave. The right setting, it would seem to me, would be the palace where the finest doctors of the land are waiting and nurses and the finest of linens and the moment the child is born to be placed upon a throne, not a feeding trough. I think maybe this isn't, you're not quite, this isn't right. You're not doing it the right way. Naturally, we look at the whole story and we say, everything about what happened is the opposite of the way that it should happen. And yet, this is how God does it. Remember, his goal is not to come and to save the great and to save the mighty and to save the famous. He came into this world to save sinners. Those in their brokenness and their lowliness, those of us who realize that we have nothing to offer God, that there is no good thing within us, we are low. That's what it takes to be saved, is to acknowledge, I have a great need. And Christ stepped into that brokenness. He stepped into the need. He stepped into the, into the grief and into the sin and the wickedness and all of the brokenness in this world, which we see in, in painful ways like Newtown, Connecticut, and we see in personal ways in the homes that we live in and the families that we'll be with on Tuesday. This world is not the way that it ought to be. This world is so not that. And we see that brokenness that sin has created and he didn't stay in his lofty throne and say, okay, I'm going to save all you people, but I certainly don't want to get my hands dirty. From the beginning, he got dirty, placed in a feeding trough. That is the whole story of Jesus. Humbled himself to become a servant. And giving his life as a servant to ransom many. Isn't it beautiful? I mean, it's just, it's so confounding and yet so wonderful at the same time. Bonhoeffer writes it this way, Who among us will celebrate Christmas right? 
Those who finally lay down all their power, honor, and prestige, all their vanity, pride, and self-will at the manger. Those who stand by the lowly and let God alone be exalted. Those who see in the child in the manger the glory of God precisely in this lowliness. Magnify, rejoice, humble. The last word is Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary was a virgin, but she was not sinless. Sinless people don't need a Savior. But Mary says in her song, it's the very first stanza, that he is my Savior. Now, why is that critical? Because we look in the story, and if there was anybody in the story that you might go, well, you know what? We all know what Peter was like, and, you know, John had his moments, and, um, you know, Moses was a great leader, but he, you know, did some things that weren't the best, and we all know about David, and, and uh, Adam was great for a while, but then we know that he sinned, and you just go through the whole story of all of the heroes, and, you know, all of them are really good, but if there's somebody that you would think maybe, possibly, if there'd be somebody that wouldn't need a Savior, it might be the Virgin Mary. And yet right here, we have the Virgin Mary saying, I stand at the front of the line. I need a Savior. And friend, today, you might be a good person. You might have many admirable qualities. But you're no Mary. And if Mary needed a Savior, don't you think that you do as well? And out of that need, is it possible that this child is the Savior you need? How does he become my Savior? I don't know what that means. He was born 2,000 years ago. We've come to find out that in God's plan, this child grew up, lived a very perfect life, died on the cross as the one sinless person dying for sinners. And God tells us in his word, here's how it's going to work. Any sinner that repents of their sins and receives my son as, her, as, as his or her savior, I will forgive all of your sins and I will give you eternal life. That's the way it's going to work. And God sets the rules and that's the way that it's going to be. But the good news is we simply believe. We believe, like Mary, who believed herself what the angel said. For you today to believe, not what I'm saying, I'm a sinner just like you, but to believe what God says through his word and through his angels and through his son. This saving message grounded in a Savior who has come. And you can believe today. Right where you're seated, you can believe today. Now, Christian, I said also at the beginning, I was hoping that for perhaps those of us that are exhausted and spiritually we're thin, we feel like I'm not there yet, how do we get there? I would say to you that Mary has given us a great guide to getting there. 
In fact, you can take those in reverse. It begins with an understanding of my need. My need for a Savior. In fact, our, your, our joy at Christmas is equal to my sense of how much I need a Savior. If I don't need a Savior that much, well, then this is not such a big deal. But if I realize how much I need a Savior, now my joy is really glad that a Savior has come. Amen? You with me? Okay, those two always go together. So if you're flat right now, it probably means that you are minimizing the need that you have for Christ's coming. But it begins with an understanding that he is, my, he is a Savior and that I need a Savior, which flows out of a humility where I acknowledge that I'm not all that, that I'm, 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 I'm a human being. I have failed God morally over and over again. I have failed my family. I have failed to be what... I ought to be. I am a sinner. I'm nothing great. I'm here and today and gone tomorrow. No need to exalt myself. I am in a humble estate. And when I get my humility and that Jesus has come for me, there flows out of that joy, right? Joy, which is something we all very much want, but we don't want to manufacture. And from that joy flows worship. My soul magnifies the Lord. And if I think if we take those things backwards and walk this thing to the point of worship, we can celebrate Christmas like a genuine Christian. And I know I want that. And I want that for you and for our whole church family, that this would be a very special Christmas for all of us. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Magnify, rejoice, humility, Savior. Amen. Why don't we stand together for prayer?